Welcome to I Want to Put a Baby in You, a podcast exploring reproductive technology and life-changing stories. Here are your hosts, Jennifer White and Ellen Trackman. Welcome to I Want to Put a Baby in You, a podcast about all things assisted reproductive technology. We go beyond politics, beyond science, beyond even human beings in this case, so that we could talk about <laughs> reproductive in all of its interesting uh, glory here. Uh, I'm Jennifer White. I am the co-owner and director of Bright Futures Families, which is affiliated with Colorado Surrogacy, Montana Surrogacy, and New Mexico Surrogacy. And uh, I love, love my job. I get to support people every day and help them create their families. Um, I get to do all of this, though, with the one wonderful help of my sister and co-host here of podcast, Ellen Trackman. Thank you. Um, we should have a soundtrack of like applause right there. Maybe. Okay. Um, so I'm Ellen Trackman. I am an attorney specialized in assisted reproductive technology law. Um, I also write a weekly column on assisted reproductive technology law for the website abovethelaw.com. And um, yeah, I'm excited to, to share stories in this area, where which is just so in, incredibly fascinating. So today we have something a little bit new and different, which is an interview with a professor, Jennifer Barfield. She is with the College of Veterans medicine and biomedical sciences at Colorado State University. And I met her when I spoke to her class that she was teaching about embryology and assisted reproductive technology. And talking to her, I was incredibly fascinated um, to hear not just about her human projects, but by animal assisted reproductive technology, which I just thought like, oh, this just isn't what I do. It's like a whole other area. But her her stories were so interesting and so fascinating. I thought it would be a great fit to have her her come on. And so I'm excited to, to have her. And I did want to read a little bit about um, their program, which I thought was fascinating at CSU. That So she runs a master's program. And I, I read this straight from the website that is unique in the country a one-year non-thesis program in assistive reproductive technologies, very intensive hands-on hands-on training that they just can't get anywhere else. They learn to make embryos. They do an internship instead of a final exam. And many of them help with the bison and cattle work, which you're about to hear more about. And um, they, yeah, so their graduates work with high-volume IVF clinics in Manhattan, New York. Um, so I thought it was just really interesting that the, this is where people become embryologists. This is the the woman who who trains them. So, sorry. Okay. So I'm very excited to talk to her. Jennifer, <clears throat> enough. That's awesome. So, so if you have <laughs> if you have any comments on this episode or any other episode you've been listening to, we love to hear from everybody. We have a hotline set up. You can call us at 303-997-1903 and leave us messages. And if you are lucky enough, we would be happy to play it on the air. Uh, once again, 303 303- 997-1903 or you can email us or reach us on Facebook. We have a website. We we just loved the point is we we want to hear from you. We love hearing from everybody. So, but I also know that you want to hear from us and especially you want to hear from Jennifer Barfield. So, let's talk to her. Today, we have a very special interview, a little bit off of the main topic where we generally talk about human-assisted reproductive technology, but today we're talking to a professor of assisted reproductive technology, also about non-human assisted reproduction. So please welcome Jennifer Barfield from Colorado State. Jennifer, um, welcome, and please introduce yourself. 
Hello, thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, yes, as you said, I am a professor at Colorado State University. Uh, I'm an assistant professor in the College of Veterinary Medicine and Biomedical Science. And my specialty is reproductive physiology and assisted reproductive technologies uh, in a variety of species, actually. That's great. And I have to laugh because so I spoke to your your students at one point and when so, people kept saying human assisted reproductive technology, it felt kind of like when I first heard someone say snow skiing, where I was like, no, no, that's just skiing. But in, in this whole <laughs> other context, no, no, you have to specify human assisted reproductive technology. Um, so tell us a little about what you teach and who you teach to and what they go on to, to do and become. Sure. So I teach comparative reproduction. And so we talk about how species from, you know, your common domestic species reproduce. We even talk a little bit about human in that class. But then we talk about, uh, you know, marine mammals and amphibians and reptiles. And we'll also do some really interesting mammals like naked mole rats or hyenas. And so we really just kind of capture a lot of different species that you wouldn't normally talk about in a classroom setting, in all honesty, because we tend to focus on the very common species or on the human. And so we really delve into some of those unique aspects of reproduction. I, I mean, I kind of internally laugh. What makes a what makes a species interesting to you? Because I'm like, oh, a naked mole rat, of course. I, yeah. Oh, <laughs> no, I was about to jump in and say, like, my child was actually obsessed with naked mole rats for oh, a really long time. Mm. We actually would go find displays of them and go watch them, like, in their little dark burrows. And we would sit and watch them for hours. Yeah, she loved naked mole rats. Oh yeah, and and their reproduction is really fascinating. So they have what they, what you call a eusocial system, where only the queen reproduces, which is highly unusual in a mammalian species, right. as you can imagine. Oh. Uh, you know, you see it in things like bees or wasps, but it's really unusual. And so the female can actually reproductively suppress both the males and females. And her body actually undergoes a conformational change and an elongation of the spine once she becomes the queen so that she can accommodate all of the babies that she will have, which can be up to 900 in her life. Wow. Um, that is wow. interesting. I had no idea. Wow. Yeah. They're a fascinating species. They're one of my favorites. Yeah. Wow. Any others come to mind? Is really fascinating. I'd never heard that before. <laughs> Um, well, a lot of common species have some really unique things that you wouldn't know. I mean, horses are actually very different from most of your livestock species or, you know, just kind of because they kind of span livestock or pets. But uh, yeah, and then things like um, hyenas, they're really fascinating where they have a lot of siblicide. So they're born with their eyes open and their teeth wow. and they start fighting immediately and the females are um they they really look like males so it's very hard to distinguish males from females and the females actually have to give birth through a pseudo penis so their anatomy is really fascinating and uh yeah the survival strategy of that species is just uh really really interesting i've never heard the term pseudo penis that that is a new uh, one. That's, or or simplified. Really, I was well, like, oh, simplified. <laughs> I had language for what I was thinking about, but yeah, right. So, so what inspired you to go into this field? I mean, obviously, it's fascinating to hear about it now. But what what brought you to it? Well, growing up, I always loved animals, and you know, 
I think a lot of young people think that if I love animals and I want to work with them, I have to be a veterinarian. And for sure, that was the path that I took for a very long time. Uh, but in my undergraduate, I had a really great advisor who asked me to be um, an assistant, a student assistant for her reproduction class. And that kind of hooked me. And then I did a summer internship at the Cincinnati Zoo, where I got to watch scientists working with animals and trying to breed them. And I remember uh, feeding, uh, I think it was like apples or just fruits and things to the rhinos while they were being ultrasound to try and determine when they were going to ovulate and if they could, you know, potentially breed them. And I was fascinated by this. And so um, I decided then to pursue it in graduate school. So I looked for a program that had both a conservation and a reproduction aspect to it. And I just kind of followed the opportunities in my interests and just continued to be more, you know, enthralled by this field. And I mean, it continues today. I feel like, you know, when you're a scientist, it's the questions, it's the learning, and it just never stops. So that's really kept me going. That, that's awesome. So how do you train to be an embryologist exactly? I mean, that's like kind of the I mean, that actually spans both human reproduction and the other. So it's it's an interesting question, no matter what, for us. How do you, how do, you do that? Yeah, no, that's a great question. Um, so, you know, you really have to learn how to make embryos in some context, and that's can be difficult to do. Uh, if you're in college, you know, there may be laboratories that are in your university where they do some basic reproduction or embryology. Um, here at Colorado State... Uh, we actually have a master's program in assisted reproductive technologies, and I'm a co-director of that with Dr. Jim Graham. And it's a one-year program that really focuses on the practical skills of making embryos in the laboratory. And we use a domestic species to do that. So cattle, um, you know, every week we get a bucket of ovaries for our students, (laughs) and it is their job. I am I'm actually it's a big thermos. Oh, so, thermos. Okay. Um, <laughs> well, that makes it better. <laughs> yes, you know, we have to keep them at a certain temperature. But it's the students' jobs to take the eggs out of the ovaries and to fertilize them the following day and to carry them out to the stage at which they would be put into a female. Uh and so yeah, it's really fun because you get a lot of hands-on and that's really what you need to become an embryologist. Um, there are some, you know, human clinics that um, may accept junior embryologists who don't have as much experience, but it's it's um, far more beneficial to try to get a little bit of training before you decide whether to go into the field because it does require a lot of attention to detail. So, in, you know, you, you sit at a microscope for a good bit. And so knowing that you like that is kind of a, you know, you want to know that before you go into the situation. Right. But um, yeah, it's, it's a lot of hands-on and then just really learning about reproduction. So taking classes that are focused on reproduction, that really helps to understand what you're doing and why. And I know we've talked about briefly um, before, uh, for well planning for this, that you've had some really interesting projects. And I know Yellowstone is one of the big um, projects you worked on that I found incredibly fascinating. Do you mind kind of giving a little background to that and, and what you're doing? Sure. Yeah. So, yeah, over the past, I don't know, six or seven years, I've really 
developed a love for bison. And so a lot of my research is on bison reproduction, in particular, the Yellowstone um, bison. And the the queen bison who reproduces for, no, is that, there's not, no. (laughs) No, not not this species. Uh, It's a different species. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so, you know, the Yellowstone bison is they're they're very special. They're one of the largest free ranging herds uh, in North America, and they have very unique genetics, very valuable genetics because um, they have no evidence of having been bred with cattle in their history, which is not something that we can say about a lot of different herds um, in North America. Yeah. And and this is really because kind of a a serendipitous series of events where um, when bison numbers got very low, you know, we once had maybe 60 million uh, bison in North America, and that got down to definitely under a thousand animals. Um, But there were kind of pockets where they survived because of the efforts of of some ranchers and other folks. Um, But when those numbers were very low, some folks had experimented with crossbreeding them. And there may have been some uh, crossbreeding that occurred incidentally. Uh, But what happened was some of the bison that were left had some cattle genes in them. And then those bison were used to repopulate areas where we wanted to preserve the bison. But that apparently did not happen Mm -hmm. in Yellowstone because using all of the genetic tools we have, we cannot detect uh, any cattle genes in the bison from Yellowstone and National mostly Park. Mostly by luck, I guess. That, or how did, do you know if they're isolated somehow to be spared from that? Yeah. Yeah. So there were some that survived in the park that managed to isolate themselves and stay protected there. But then there were some animals that were brought in from the outside to help repopulate Yellowstone. And that, I think, was really just luck or careful planning I don't know but it just so happens that the ones they brought back did not have any cattle genes uh, in their DNA so this herd has grown and 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 of course you know they have somewhere between three and five thousand bison there on any given year Um, but the problem for that particular herd is that they a large number of them have the disease brucellosis and and what is that what does it do to them or the herd yeah, so it's a disease that's caused by a bacterium, very likely introduced to the bison from cattle. And oh, man, the cattle are definitely the bad guys in all of this, <laughs> right? Well, I think, yeah, there was just, it just happened that, that they brought this disease over. And of course, the bison had never been exposed to it. Um, and so it got, you know, picked up by them and has been carried on. It doesn't kill them. But it does cause them to lose their calves, um, particularly after they're infected, maybe the first or the second year. Um, and so, you know, it can it can impact the herd in that way. But the but the real problem for the bison in Yellowstone National Park is that the, that then the disease could be given to given back to cattle, actually, in the surrounding areas where ranchers live. It can be given to other wildlife, so it's actually very prevalent in elk. Um, and potentially people can get it, but you really have to come in contact with, um, you know, fluids from the animal, particularly uh, like the placenta or, you know, so, an aborted So you're fetus. saying don't load them into your car. Do not. Right? 
Yeah. Or the placentas. <laughs> don't love you with their placenta into your don't, car. Don't. If you see, yeah, do not touch any babies, uh, baby bison in Yellowstone. And definitely don't put them in their car, in your car. <laughs> Is it deadly to us? Uh, I'm sorry, what was that? Is the disease deadly to us, to humans? It is not deadly in and of itself, but it does cause a very extended period where you feel like you have the flu. You have to be on antibiotics for months and months. And there is the possibility that you could die if you had other underlying health conditions. So it could exacerbate things like rheumatoid arthritis and and other diseases. But yeah, it will make you um, fairly miserable. So... It's best not to get it. Okay. So what's happening to the herd in Yellowstone? Yeah. So um, so with reproductive assisted technologies and bison, um, when I was just starting to explore this field, I had met some folks who were already working with bison to try to look at disease mitigation strategies. So basically trying to figure out, um, can we cure this disease? Can we create a vaccine? Are there ways we can manage these animals so that we don't spread the disease and we had the idea of using assisted reproductive technologies because there are methods in place to um, generate embryos and wash them uh, free of the bacterium that would cause the disease. And this had been demonstrated in livestock species and primarily cattle, uh, which was great yeah. because we had this model. So now, so now cows get their good guy status back is what you're That's saying, right? right? That's right. Okay. We're sorry, There's cows. a lot of great work done in the cattle. <laughs> um So that work really provided a framework for which to try these technologies in bison to see if we could take animals that potentially were um, positive for the disease and could we, you know, collect embryos from them or collect eggs or collect sperm from them and basically cleanse it to ensure that we didn't pass on the disease um, if we were to take a resulting embryo and put it into a healthy female. So could we generate the healthy offspring? And so um, that's what we've done. (laughs) Great. Yeah. So we've used artificial insemination to produce offspring. And we, um, you know, did kind of performed a method that would help to clean the semen or clean the sperm cells first before we froze it. Um, And then we could use it for artificial insemination. Um, We have collected embryos from animals and uh, transferred those. And we've had healthy offspring that way. That's great. Uh, and the, yeah, and then the other thing that we have done, which we, we just had our first calf this past year, so we were super excited. Do you have a, do you have a baby picture? Do you have a baby, baby, baby bicycle? I, I do have baby <laughs> pictures, yeah. <laughs> I take a lot of baby pictures. I'm, you know, I'm one of those moms who <laughs> basically just has a million pictures of the same face of, of my baby. Does the, does the baby bison have a name? It does not. We haven't named her. Oh, no. Is it a number? Oh, her and her. Well, does she have like a number? We call her IVF one, so we know that she is the one that was produced by IVF, IVF one. Yeah. yeah. So wow. what's what's really special about her is that um, one of the projects that we do, we we go up when they are removing bison from that Yellowstone population. So part of their management strategy is to call animals that. Um, migrate out of the park. And so when they go to the slaughterhouses, we work in the slaughterhouse to recover that genetic material to try to preserve it. Um, But this past year, we also 
um, thawed some of the embryos that we made from that material and transferred them during the breeding season because largely the collection of the material happens during the winter. Um, and we were able to transfer that embryo into a healthy bison and get our healthy female calf. IVF1. IVF1, yes. And so she she's very soon going to join our conservation herd, um, which is also very exciting. That's awesome. Do you, do you do that through the university? Do you do that through a private organization? How, how, what, how do you do that part? I do it through the university. So many of my students are involved in the collection process and in the embryo making process. Um, and we do that through donations and through grants that people provide us to do the bison research. How, how could people look up information on donations if anybody's interested about this? Well, you can go to uh, advancing.colostate, so C-O-L-O state.edu slash bison. And there it provides a form where you can, can make a donation and it gives you a little description of our project in our, in our herd. So, yeah. So tell me more about how you do this in Yellowstone. I, when you say culling the herd, that's, to my understanding, there's hundreds or thousands of bison being being slaughtered in a every year is that right or am I over exaggerating well it depends it varies from year to year so there are a group of agencies that come together to make the decision about um, how they will manage the herd for the upcoming year and you know the winter season when they have some migration out of the park and so those group of people, um, it's called the Interagency Bison Management Plan. So they, they set how many um, should be removed from the population every year. Would and you it's, say they're, they're like a death panel? Is that what you'd categorize Oh, that's, that's a horrible way to describe the, the, them because... The bison death panel? Yeah. <laughs> I, think, um, I think they would hate to be called that. I wouldn't call them that myself. Um, Okay, okay. They're they're looking for the the long run health of the bison, right? Okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They they're trying to manage a lot of different interests around bison, which are very complex in that region. And I think that if if that group could come up with a way to not have to slaughter any bison at all, I feel like they would absolutely support that because no one who is involved in that particular process or decision uh wants that to be the decision that's made. So yeah, um, but unfortunately, it's the way they've decided to manage for now, or that's the kind of one of the options available. And so my um, angle on it is really that as long as that's a management strategy that's being used, I hope to continue to preserving those genetics and can continue this line of research. But if they come up with a different way to manage the population, uh, I would be thrilled to not have to work in the slaughterhouses and preserve that material. Right. That has to make for some really interesting stories, though. So if you have to go, I mean... Oh, I, I can't even imagine. What kind of stories do you have about having to travel to go do that? No. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, we are, my lab is two states away, so we have to go through Wyoming, which um, is not always the easiest uh, travel. It doesn't provide us the easiest traveling conditions in the winter. Uh, so, you know, we often hit snow and icy roads, and, and you just really never know what you're going to find. And of course, you know, we don't have a lab up in Montana, so we are often working in um, hotel rooms. (laughs) So we can convert a hotel room into a little mini embryology lab, uh, you know, in a matter of an hour. And that's uh, impressive. Yeah, work in there and be able to collect those eggs. And and then we ship them back to Colorado or actually we drive them back overnight so that they can be fertilized in Colorado the next day. 
So, the people in the room next to you don't necessarily know that babies are being made in the room across the number next to them. It's not they as have, obvious. Thing. That's right. That's they have no idea. And now everybody who goes <laughs> to Yellowstone not. knows there's a chance babies are being made next door. They just had no idea that there could be a mobile lab. <laughs> That there's an embryology <laughs> lab in the next the next room. They had no they have no idea, yeah. You <laughs> say so you never know what's happening in the room next to you. Mm-hmm. So you're going to the slaughterhouse and then you're like taking the ovaries and thermoses back to your hotel room? Is that kind of how it how it works? Or buckets? Is that yeah, I mean, we, we have them in little Ziploc bags because we have each one identified by the animal. So we do know, you know, which animal these eggs came from so that we can kind of track that back. Um, but yeah, and then they're in a big thermos and they're kept kind of warm, which during the winter in Montana is sometimes a challenge because it can be fairly cold up there. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, wow. So. I mean, how many, well, I guess you can't really answer this. I say on average, do you end up having to do this? Are they all collected in one location? Is this over multiple locations and multiple events? I mean, how, how often do you have to go do this? It's multiple locations, multiple events, and we really never know because it changes on an annual basis. And we really actually don't have much um, uh, lead time either. We usually get the notice about 24 to 48 hours ahead of time. And then we just kind of always have a kit packed and ready to go so that when we um, know that it's happening, we can, we can go and, um, and collect the material. And hope that the weather is good on the way. (laughs) Hope the weather's good. Hope I have some students that are free that don't have exams or something else and (laughs) that I can get a team together and, and get out on the road. That's that's incredible how fast it is. Do you have you had to do it this winter, or do you expect to have to go up there this winter? Uh, we haven't done it yet this winter, um, and so I'm still gathering information about the conditions up there and kind of what's happening. Um, but we don't have any plans at the moment. But like I said, that could change really at the drop of a hat. It could be you know we we could go next week and we just have no idea right now. Oh, a lot of unpredictability. That's that's amazing. Yeah. So where do the, the store genetic material go? Do you just store it on campus or how, what happens to it? Well, right now we do store it on campus, um, at our labs and in a couple of other places. Um, and we have, you know, hundreds of embryos at the moment that are frozen in liquid nitrogen, uh, just waiting to hopefully one day be thawed and, and implanted into a, a healthy bison. But we also have plans to donate some of that ma- that material to the National Animal Germplasm Program, which is run by the United States Department of Agriculture. And they actually have an installation right here in Fort Collins on the campus of Colorado State University. Um, and it's, it's really cool, actually. Wow. <laughs> it's kind of like this big underground vault with these huge liquid nitrogen containers where they store um, tissues, reproductive cells and tissues and other, um, actually other tissues as well from basically anything that we eat or wear in the United States is kind of the way it was put to me at one point. (laughs) I mean, that's fascinating if we have this kind of vault here in Colorado as well. I've heard of the famous one, which I think is in Sweden, where they keep genetic materials and seeds, I I think, but there's like, there's like thermofrost and there's like issues going on where it might not be as safe. Is it, is that, do you know more about this? Than you can tell me. Is that close to right? 
Yeah, I mean, I don't know the current, like the current status of that program, but I have heard that with, you know, climate change, there have been some issues with temperatures warming there because they were really kind of, you know, counting on it staying cold for, you know, to help kind of manage that facility and keep things cold enough. But uh, I mean, here in Fort Collins, we have to use liquid nitrogen and everything is stored in these big liquid nitrogen tanks. So even if it gets hot outside, it's not the same. So there they were banking on it just naturally being cold enough to keep everything frozen. Is that? In all honesty, I'm not entirely sure of how it's designed and how much the outside temperature plays into the overall management of the tissues and the cells inside. I would imagine that some of them are in liquid nitrogen or in freezers, um, um, but, but I don't know the details. And the idea is if, like, God forbid, a, a species or like a whole plant um, – genome or I don't I have the wrong terms I'm sure it was you know wiped out by disease or something that there's a chance of bringing it back by by having these stored seeds and genetic material is that right that's right that's absolutely one of the applications of this um and it could just be to um you know inject new genetics into a population that may have been isolated for a while as well so this is an open resource to the public. People can go in and request material from this um, genome bank, essentially. And, you know, that would say you have, you know, a, a herd of very rare sheep and, you know, you might be running into an issue where you have some inbreeding going on and you want to bring in a different animal. Well, that there might not be an animal available, but there might be a semen sample in this bank that you could then artificially inseminate one of your ewes with and get that boost of genetics, which will help make the whole, you know, herd a little healthier or flock, I guess, of sheep. Um, it, it would make the whole group healthier, you know, so to bring in those new genetics. And so that's another application as well. All right. Given given how many animals there are, animals and plants there are in the world, how how much stuff is in there then? I mean, that's an amazing thought, mind blowing. Yeah. So um, on the animal side, it looks like they have over fifty thousand animals represented from thirty four different species and one hundred and sixty four breeds. And what that really amounts to is just a little bit under a million different samples or tissues um, that are stored right here. Uh, in Colorado. Any mammoths, dodo birds, dinosaurs? Uh, I did. I I need to check (laughs) the inventory for that because you can look at the inventory and see everything they have in there. (laughs) Gosh, I really should have looked for that. (laughs) Um, Are there there human samples in there? Not that I know of. I think this is only to support the agricultural sector. So yeah. Ellen, we do not eat our friends. As she said, eat or wear, (laughs) eat or wear. (laughs) I, I just wear them. Eat them. Yeah. Um, so that I found your project really, you're really fascinating, and the vault really fascinating. Um, is there anything that you think is informative or stories to share that we should also add for people who want to be an embryologist or um, your experiences? You know, I feel like you know a lot of people ask me kind of how I got to where I am or how did I get into this? And in all honesty, I really followed kind of both my interests and the opportunities that were available to me. So, you know, my um, undergraduate degree is in animal science. So that's very agricultural leaning, animal production. And then there was this element of animal reproduction. But 
when I did my, um, my graduate work, I actually worked in a human clinic in Germany on the andrology side where I had the opportunity to work with samples from you know, humans and monkeys and mice and a lot of different species. And then I came to Colorado and that expanded to large animals and primarily hoofstock. And, um, you know, so I feel like that if you really want to do this to, you know, definitely have a goal in mind and have a place that you want to be, but really be open to taking a lot of different paths to get there. Because I sure when I first started to develop this enthusiasm for reproduction, I did ne I never envisioned the path that I actually took. And never in, in a million years did I think I would be working with bison. But, you know, I left myself open to that opportunity. And I have just found it incredibly rewarding, while incredibly challenging as well. Um, you know, and so that's been kind of my philosophy and the way I've managed it. That's great. I think that's that's probably really helpful for anyone who might be considering it. Um, when's the last time you saw IVF1? How's she doing? Oh, she's great. I saw her three days ago, I believe. Yeah. <laughs> so we, we're preparing to take her up to her new home, which Aww. is in northern Colorado. So part, part of our research has resulted in the establishment of a conservation herd of bison in northern Colorado. And those bison are on a public open space, public land that's managed by the city and the county. And so people can actually go up there and see bison. Um, now they are on a really big piece of land. So when I say you can go up there and see bison, you may go up there and not see the bison because they have such a large space. Uh, but if you can see them, it's a really, really beautiful, uh, piece of land. It's just a beautiful environment and it really feels like they're back kind of where they should be. Um, so I'm excited for her to go join, join that group of animals. There's 36 up there now, and she's going to, um, join a group that's going to go up there in the next couple weeks. That's great. And are there any plans for um, IVF two or three? Yes, of course. <laughs> we, we've, we've proven that we can do it. So now we want to improve um, our success. So we're going to still work on the process. And it's really tricky to work with bison because they are not um, as tame as cattle, as you can imagine. And so they get a little bit stressed when you handle them. And, mm. you know, stress can have really negative impacts on reproductive success. So we're, we're right. for many. Yes. Yeah, that's true for all species, I would say. And, you know, so we have this kind of uh, challenge and that we have to manage the amount of stress that we put the animals under just by handling them, um, you know, versus, you know, keeping them happy enough for them to get pregnant and stay pregnant and have healthy babies. So, but we do plan so lavender massages. Oh yeah. They love a good massage. <laughs> so that actually led me to think about like with IVF one, then if she's being managed by people, does that change how she's going to her reintegration into the wild? Does that lead to some challenges there? Yeah, that's a great question. So even though she's in our facility and she is surrounded well, not surrounded. It's not really a, the best word. I would say she sees people every day. We have only ever put our hands on her one time. Uh, so, you know, we put our hands on her basically to give her an ear tag so we know who she is and to test her for um, uh, diseases, basically, to make sure that she is, in fact, healthy because she did come from material from Yellowstone National Park or from a bison from Yellowstone. Um, and so, actually... 
I misspoke. We've touched her twice. So we touched her right after birth because we took a sample to test her then. And then we touched her when she was six months old. And so we were really, um, all of our research and all of the work we do is designed to have minimal handling of the animals because we we do not want them to get used to being touched by people, especially if they're going to be going out to a public open space. We don't want them approaching people. Uh, so we do the best we can in the situation that we've, that we have. And all of the animals that are currently in the herd were in our facility first, and they've seemed to adapt it really well. Um, because that was obviously a concern that we had when we put them out there, you know, in this kind of wide open space, how they would react to it. But they act like, okay, all right, we're back where we should be. This is, this is fantastic. They, they really don't seem to exhibit any strange behaviors. You know, I'm, I will say they will approach my car because they know that, uh, sometimes I give them treats and we use that. Mm. (laughs) We use that to move them from pasture to pasture uh, in an easy kind of low stress way. So if I just kind of throw treats out the car and they follow my car, I can, you know, move them into the corral so that we could potentially work with them or move them to a different pasture or wherever we need them to be. So, yeah, I mean, you probably couldn't get wild bison to do that. But uh, for us, it's a strategy. You can never sell your car is what you're saying. You have to keep that car forever. I know. I'm just, you know, I'm I'm waiting for the first dent to be put in by a bison bumping it. I mean, Mm. they've hit it a couple of times, but haven't put any lasting damage on it. Um, But uh, it'll be interesting to report that to my insurance company one day. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, What are bison treats? What do they like? They actually look like... um, really large pellets and they're kind of just compressed Mm. grain and alfalfa and molasses and you know they're high in protein so they love twinkies they're not twinkies yeah (laughs) you wouldn't move bison the same way you move people (laughs) (laughs) yeah 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 Well, thank you. Uh, This has been really interesting. I mean, we normally talk so much about humans and families and lives and have this new structure, but I think it's really interesting to kind of talk a little bit about the roots and where people are being trained and how it's not just humans are being affected, that we're also affecting um, bison population and naked mole rats and (laughs) kind of other species as well that we're really learning a lot and um, growing and and changing our world in, in other ways. It's not just with our self-centered, you know, human population. Yeah, that is so true. I mean, the things we learn, you know, by studying human reproduction or bison reproduction or cattle reproduction or whatever species it is, you know, there's always the chance that that could have relevance for a different species. And so that information kind of moves back and forth and helps all of the different species reproduce. And so that's one of the really fun things about being in reproduction. That's awesome. Thank you. Well, thank you for all you do and for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me. This has been such a pleasure. So lesson of the day. Um, I I think that the number one lesson is if you're interested in embryology, that um, Jennifer Barfield is an excellent person to talk to and that CSU has an amazing program. Um, the other less helpful lesson of the day, I think, is that if there's an apocalypse, that Colorado might be the best place to come. I mean, one, I just saw a study that said that if there is a zombie apocalypse, the Rocky Mountains is the safest area of the United States. And two, we have this vault that has, um, you know, the beginnings to restart our our cattle, our, our clothing sources, our food. Um, so this does seem like the place to be if there is that apocalypse. 
apocalypse. Just just saying. So very, very important lesson. I, I don't know if that was Jennifer's goal here, so I apologize to to her. But um, yeah, that's what, that's what I drew out of it. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that everybody should come to Colorado for the apocalypse. You know, why not? (laughs) Bring everybody on board. But in the meantime, while it is not apocalypse time yet, we would love to hear from everybody on iTunes. Uh, We want reviews. We want people to hopefully really click that five star mark. That would really make us very happy. We, We do a happy dance every time. I mean, like every time you hit that five star mark we we all we just cheer we throw a party we you know there are snacks involved so you should keep doing that because we need more snacks uh, <laughs> on top of that you should also consider joining us in our patreon community we have uh, in-depth com- conversations via slack we have bonus material again lots of ways to reach out to us tell us how much you think we are awesome and we want to hear from you thank you Yes, thank you also to Chris at Work at Bird Studios for uh, his incredible engineering and for not making us sound as crazy as uh, I often do. And I do have to give my own crazy shout out after yours last week uh, to totally fangirl all over Ian Samuel. Uh, I have been a huge fan of First Mondays for a very long time. And the fact that he was willing to mentor us, uh, it, it about blew my mind. Uh, and I, I feel like I made a total fool of myself when we've, when we've spoken to him. So a really huge thank you to Ian Samuel for uh, taking good care of us as we started this process. So thank you very much.